This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. Craig, did you ever think, you know, books today are too happy and too many, there are too many happy endings where people end up feeling good at the end of the book. Yeah, I can, I'm just going to think back to a number of recent contemporary books that I've read where everybody definitely wound up happy at the end. Right, and then it just like it ends with like a big dance party like a like in Shrek or something like a Is that how Shrek ends? You know how I well isn't there a thing where they play the, the Smash Mouth version of I'm a Believer and they all like dance and stuff? I think every 3D animated children's movie ends with a big dance party. Most of them do. Yeah, yes. and also like fake bloopers sometimes. Oh, that's my favorite. Your favorite is fake actually. Bloopers. I really like it in the early Pixar films, and it has certainly worn out its welcome. Yeah, but I do like the idea of like, yeah, that is, took just as much trouble to animate and render as all of it, and we're all gonna pretend like it's a big stupid mistake. I love it. I love. I like. Yeah. The, I like pretending that the cartoon characters are also yeah. actors and you know artists and laborers. I like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're saying that so today here in 2023 there are too many happy books with happy endings and for our book podcast maybe we should read maybe maybe there's something else we could read we there's something else i can read and so i got i bring to you i submit for the approval of the midnight society madame bovary by gustave flaubert 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 as stephen colbert <laughs> my god <laughs> um and this book is fun. I thought it was kind of funny actually, but it is only because it's comical how bad everybody ends up by the end. Of it. Sure. It's you know, like a great Shakespearean tragedy where it like ends with the main characters like dying in each other's arms or whatever. Yeah. Uh, this is like that, but then what if there was like uh, an Animal House style sort of post credit sequence where you found out how everybody else was miserable and yes. died at the end? <laughs> Love it. So, yeah, because the so two is, the two Shakespeare yeah. options are wedding and dance party or everyone dead. Yeah. Just like a just like Shrek. Just and, like a Shrek movie. Yeah. And so you're saying what if everyone dead but also everyone what else everybody, sad? What if everybody died at the dance party at the end? Whoa. <laughs> and the dance party was being held after the funeral for the main character. This book sounds hype. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So neither of us have read this before, though. I had no... No, I've never read this before. Every Mm. week one of us reads a book we've never read before, tells the other person about it. I had never read this before. Susanna assumed that I had picked up enough about Madame Bovary from osmosis yeah that i knew that she died at the end and mm. so i was like yeah i'm getting close to the end and Susanna's like yeah did she die yet and then she was utterly unrepentant about spoiling the end of the book for me so i get to do it now to all of you listeners too it, it, this book falls in a category for me where like i had gleaned some of this through cultural osmosis 
I could see it coming, but I still like, you know, you like to maintain. I'm the kind of person who I'll like rewatch a show or something bad happens. I'm like, man, I really hope they can. I really hope they can get out of it this time. You know? Yeah. No. If just one or two things had to be different for the entire tragedy to be averted. I really hope they figure it out this time. That's the best tragedies. But it, mm-hmm. it's, I, I do love when we hit one of these books in the canon and one of us has just com- it's just completely missed us. Just like yeah. no no notion of what's going to be inside this book because yeah, it, it makes like, for like a fun if they read. didn't if they didn't do like a spoof of it on tiny tune adventures there's no way i'm gonna have been exposed to this story before <laughs> it is widely regarded as one of the best novels ever like it's one good, of the I mean, it was a good book one of the most I important and formative texts for the medium mm-hmm. you know it's everybody dies at the end which is how all, all books, novels well that's how we are end, yeah. now you know yeah. except for all mm-hmm. the happy ones but. except for all the happy ones we talked about but any any book that you buy that says a novel on the cover which is why they have to do that yeah is everybody dies at the end it's my that's understanding that this is. one is a biography in some of, editions of it's whom? it's Madam, of madame bovary <laughs> okay but like a fake one right <laughs> yeah so it was okay we'll talk about uh flaubert we'll talk about you got well, you got biography you got autobiography and you have pseudobiography those are the three main <laughs> main types so the if you do a biography genders, yes. about somebody who didn't exist for real that's a pseudobiography ah i could it's like i just made that categorization out there might be a word for it already i'm not sure yeah it's like a flip of auto fiction um our new favorite word uh so we're gonna talk about flaubert we're gonna talk about bovary i have like a few scant notes on like the historical moments and like if we want to do like a little susan of romantic romanticism versus real romanticism and realism because this book is instrumental in advancing what like realist uh, literature is and can mm-hmm. do, mm-hmm. Um, but let's talk about our, our man Flaubert briefly. Let's do it. Born in eighteen twenty one, when the country I thought he was born in France. Well, the country he was living in at the time was the Kingdom of France. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Under was that Louis Philippe at that point? I think um, he died in eighteen eighty. When it was the French Third Republic, uh-huh. I highlight that because, like, while he's writing, he starts writing novels or he starts trying to write novels because this was the first one that was like published and saw you know print people mm-hmm. like actually reading it out in the world. Um, we went from, you know, in the nineteenth century, we go from Napoleon to. Well, that guy's bad. Let's get this other. Let's have a different type of country that is run by another king, but like we'll limit his powers. And then mm-hmm. in the 1840s, we're like, well, we don't want kings anymore. Let's get rid of that guy, and we'll have another republic. Um, but then maybe what if we had another Napoleon? Because we're France and we love that. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we France have, is just figuring some stuff out. They spent the whole 19th century figuring some just stuff figuring out. some stuff out. Mm-hmm. And so this book, from what I've read, maybe like is like from the 1820s, 1840s ish. I don't know how specific the book is about. It's that. not. It it mentions kings a couple of times, but without like with my extre- extraordinarily cursory knowledge of French history, I couldn't place it. What sure. I read, yeah, is like mid 
20s to mid 40s is roughly when it takes place sure and the main thing to note there is that you've got this like ascendant bourgeois upper middle class like we threw off the aristocracy but now we're sort of in charge but then there's Uh also like the people just below them who are like aspiring to be yes like upper crust yes and the the critique there that i think is some of what this book is up to from what i've read is that like we had the chance to remake a different world and instead we're just like what if we're we had our own aristocracy and yeah, our this own is such ideals a, it's so divorced from like the the modern american psyche which is like and i think you know america used to be more like this cuz you look at all the pop culture around like new york being like this big epicenter of culture and a thing that everybody's yeah. trying to get to and now I would define the sort of American experience, like the relationship between the lower middle class and the upper middle class as you think you're better than me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just very extremely adversarial. Yes. And sometimes needlessly adversarial. So it's it's weird to to think about slightly less rich people wanting to do and be and like embody everything about slightly more rich people. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also the thing, too, of, like, France, like, a lot of the the big European countries had, like, went through its own transformation of a series of, like, regional cultures that then, for some reason, usually under, like, a bunch of political machinations, like, develops a national identity. That's Napoleon's whole thing, right? Is uh-huh. he, like, mm-hmm. nation- nationalism but like it happened in Italy, it happens later with Germany, and like it like the bad like the bad one in Germany or no like like, a, um, okay. like Bismarck and like uniting uh, those okay. things. Yeah, no, um, that guy was great. This is this is nothing like the wrong, part of my this is the part of my AP Euro test that I really enjoyed, which is why I'm talking like this. Um, mm-hmm. But there it conflates a bunch of like culture and kind of creates this like, well, what if we were like the upper crust in the major metropolitan hubs, right? Um, okay so i think that is what he is it is worth thinking about the the culture and society he is like responding to and and critiquing sure um, yeah because it definitely yeah there are people in this book who usually like sometimes the comic effect and sometimes the tragic effect are Mm. like seeing people who are very slightly above their above their station, so to speak, and but but not so far above it that they just never interact. Yeah, and it does spark a certain kind of like jealousy or, or an eagerness to like emulate among the the slightly lower class people. So sure. yeah, we'll we'll talk about that a couple times. So he's a son of a surgeon, um, and it always sounds like a political ass. Son of a surgeon, um, you son of a surgeon. He <laughs> he went to school in Rouen. Um, he went to uh, Paris to study law. Um, he met Victor Hugo, Emile Zola, a bunch of other smart people who have Wikipedia pages. Um, he did like no, no red links in this crowd. No, I don't think so. Um, I'm sure there were red links and they didn't have the term yet to mm-hmm. live to like, you're not going to be remembered. You red yeah. link. Um, and he's like travels around. He goes to. Greece, Egypt, Beirut, Istanbul, Carthage, uh, but then winds up kind of back in his hometown, I think, where his mom and some other family members had settled. Um, And then he had, like, one long-term relationship 
swore off having kids after that relationship didn't work out. He said um, he was not interested. He would transmit to no one the aggravations and the disgrace of existence, he said. <laughs> uh, That's an amazing way to declare that you're not going to have kids. Yeah, yeah. Um, throughout his travels and just throughout his life, he did, you know, he enjoyed sleeping with people of sure. many walks of life. Sure. I mean, um, that's many, many of us enjoy. It did lead to him <laughs> contracting, you know, some communicable diseases. Yeah. yeah that, you know, cost of doing business. That led to <laughs> health complications that then, you know, in his uh, late 50s uh, ultimately led to his death. Um a lot of this I I bring up not because I'm like, oh, check out this guy had venereal diseases. Like, well, isn't that interesting? It's uh-huh. more just like part of his canon, his like persona in the canon. Like he did not publish that much because he's this like I am super exacting. Every line of prose needs to be like a line of poetry. I need to pick the right word, le mot juste kind of stuff. Uh, and also he has this like, copious collection of his own letters that gets published i don't know if it gets published after he died or when but like we have a lot of his own words about his life and about his writing and about all of his struggles um so if you are someone who gets interested in flaubert like you are going to dive into his hardships you're going to dive into his style dive into his relationships or lack thereof um and also this book was uh the subject of an obscenity trial so like a guy dealing with stuff from traveling around the world also seems kind of relevant mm-hmm. sure um his first no- novella november published in 1842 or written in 1842 anyway i don't know when it was published 1849 he wrote the temptation of saint anthony and a good friend of his was told him to throw it in a fire it was too bad it's <laughs> um, ru- tough to hear yeah but- Sounds fair, probably. Um, and he starts writing this in 1850. It was published serially in the Revue de Paris. And the government levied charges of immorality against it. And, like, against him, against his publisher. Uh, the printer may have been implicated as well. I assume that was mostly around the depiction of a woman having ex- extramarital relations. Like, yes. probably Maybe not exclusively, but... If I'm thinking about the kind of thing that like an old timey guy in a powdered wig is getting mad about, it's probably about a woman like doing anything. <laughs> yeah, and doing and doing transgressive things, mm-hmm. and you know, as you spoiled earlier, she dies. Yeah, and that's a whole thing that you're not supposed to talk about. We'll talk about. Yeah, nobody dies. What are we? Not what? that the circumstances around her death. Hmm. Um, so ultimately, it's acquitted. They're acquitted. Because art and sure, uh, it leads to the book, you know, achieving a certain level of notoriety, which he would then like struggle with the rest of his life. Because then he goes, he writes Salambo in 1858, which is like this historical fiction epic thing. He went to Carthage to research it because he's trying to get away from what Bovary was. Right. And then and every, everybody's just coming up to him at cons and stuff and be like, when are you doing Madame Bovary too? Well, he keeps going to Bovary con because he doesn't need the money. But like, mm-hmm. you know, every, he doesn't want to talk about the novel. He wants to talk about his next thing and nobody wants mm-hmm. to hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, some real like play free bird kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then his last novel, A Sentimental Education, I think it brings him back to contemporary France. Uh, I've seen mixed... 
I read one article that called it like actually his masterpiece, and then another article that was like, eh, I went too far in one direction. Bovary is the sweet spot. Let's all just read Bovary and like Bovary. Mm-hmm. So yeah. somebody's got to be contrarian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this novel is, among other things, inspired by two people. Um, this woman, Louise Pradier, who knew Flaubert through other people who had multiple lovers and complicated finances. And then this <laughs> woman, um, Delphine Dallemere, who Flaubert also knew um, and or knew of, I guess. Um, and she had, you know, married an unexciting co- country doctor. She took various lovers due to complications from all those relationships. She ended up taking her own life. And it was published in a newspaper. And, you know, so-and-so knew so-and-so. So Flaubert heard about it. And he's mm-hmm. like, well, that's an interesting story that I should tell. Um, yeah. And it's a seminal work of realism, Andrew. Okay. Which was first, we think, coined in the 1820s about presenting the true objective reality. Yeah, I was going to ask. Like, I assume realism is pretty much what it sounds like it is. Yeah. It's a reaction. It's... It's interesting because I thought that there wasn't as much chronological overlap with romanticism, mm-hmm. but romanticism is this like triumph of the individual, honoring your history and achieving great deeds. Like Count of Monte Cristo was cited in one thing that I was reading about sure. romanticism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then realism is like, yeah, industrialization's kind of messed up and we're just going to document what the world is. Mm-hmm. And often that means documenting how bad it is. Yeah. But we're not going to, you know, sing songs and, and you know, hymns of great deeds. We're going to just, like, depict the world as it is. Sure. Um, and this is early for me in terms of the realism I'm familiar with. I'm more familiar with it in, like, late 19th century playwriting kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is, as we said, like, 1850s. Um and it's like exacting his whole. It, I read some review that talked about him like taking. He would maybe write a page a week. Like mm-hmm. he was just this guy. He's like, I can't progress until I have written the perfect sentence to describe what I'm talking about. Yeah, and that's not what's not what you're supposed to do. I've been. I mean, I've been reading NoRimo stuff, and you're just supposed to let it flow, and you're supposed to set aside time for editing later. So somebody should have told him. Maybe he would have cranked out more best-selling Madame Bovary-esque hits if he had, you know, just been able to sit back and let the words come out. Well, maybe, maybe, or maybe, maybe they would have all been a little weaker for it. Yeah. What would you know? What which would you prefer? One novel as good as Madame Bovary, or like ten novels that are like, yeah, seventy-five percent as good. I don't know. Without knowing what the what the seventy-five percent as good novels were like, I just can't. I can't make a decision. That's fair. Yeah. Well, we won't know what those novels are like because they're hypothetical. But after the break, right. you can tell me about this novel. <laughs> Sounds great. This episode of Overdue is sponsored by BetterHelp. Andrew, life's full of choices. It sure is. You take left turns, you take right turns, sometimes you take a U-turn. Yeah. Take the good, take the bad, you take them both. And (laughs) sometimes... Is that how that phrase goes? Yeah. Sometimes it's hard to know which path... And then you have the facts of life. Oh. 
Do you always take them both and then you have the facts of life? You have to take them both to have the facts of life. Okay. Well, (laughs) you also sometimes need a GPS to know which turn to take. And like, listen, not every part of life has a GPS. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you need help figuring out the way forward. You maybe no, it's, it's most it's mostly the car parts. Well, that yeah, have that's, a GPS. Yeah. But like if it's like a career change or you're navigating like a big family milestone, there isn't necessarily a GPS for that. Like you and I each have kids. There's a mm-hmm. big decision to have a kid, and what's yeah. kind of fun about that is that then there's a whole bunch of other big decisions you have to make because you had a kid. If there was such a thing as a as a life GPS, then having a kid would be like driving through a tunnel for 18 years. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, whether it's kids or whatever it is, therapy can help you map out your future and trust yourself to find the way forward. So if you're living through some big decisions like this, therapy can help you identify what you want to hold on to as you make your choices. And it can also help you identify you know, what might be missing in your life. You know, maybe it's like time for yourself or... Um, a certain relationship that you used to have or something like that. Um, and that's maybe that's making your choices harder. So therapy can can kind of help you talk through that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online. It's designed to be flexible and fit into your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch whenever you want with no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash overdue. Andrew, in an article in theguardian.com from 2016 celebrating the, I think, 160th anniversary of Madame Bovary, uh-huh. The article opens with a question, and then it provides an answer. What oh, does good. Carmela Soprano, materialistic cuck queen from The Sopranos, have in common with Rory Gilmore, the precocious teenager in Gilmore Girls, and the core cast of Desperate Housewives? Answer, all have been shown on screen reading Madame Bovary. <laughs> Is this a thing like that Gilmore Girls Sopranos loop where Oh, where they're in the same universe? Yeah, like it, like I don't remember any scenes where Madame Bovary is like watching the Sopranos, but if there were, that would be funny. That would be a funny joke. I would love to read that fanfic. Yeah, but no, there's definitely there's a thing where Tony Soprano is watching the Gilmore Girls and then on the Gilmore Girls they reference the character Tony Soprano. I love it so much. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um anyway, so that was just a fun uh, thing to open our conversation about the book Madame Bovary that you read for our show. That's fun. That's fun and like thematically re- relevant, probably. Probably. Where would you like to start? Mm-hmm. I mean, you always ask me that. And usually, I'm, I, and I appreciate the you know appreciate the check in. Usually, I want to start at the beginning because, as the song okay. says, it is a very good place. I mean, to the start. end was spoiled for you, so I wouldn't fault you if you wanted to start at the ending. But we can start at the beginning. I will say that we do need to get three Madame Bovary's deep before we get to the one that the book is about. Oh. (laughs) Because the beginning of the book is about Charles Bovary, who is, I wouldn't say that he is a fail son. Uh Uh-oh. I would say that he- You wouldn't say it to his face anyway. In many other, because to be a fail son, I think your dad needs to be like- Someone of- Someone of note, he needs he needs to be like competent or cool or good in some way. And okay. Charles's dad does not does not uh, does not meet that bar. But Charles Bovary is like a perfectly fine guy who 
kind of just kind of bumbles his way through life and would be perfectly happy to just live a basic existence and have that be everything that ever happened. Okay. <laughs> like he, you know, his parents are a little bit overbearing, but his childhood's not particularly uh, like gruesome. He ends up becoming, it's not quite a doctor. He's like a, a health officer or oh. something. He's like, uh, so he is like a, a medical professional, but he did not pass the test to become like a good doctor. He's Uh-oh. just kind of a, like a, you know, he's he's a he's a guy you call on to come to your house because you like tripped and got a boo boo or something. Like he's you know he, and, and he is like not amazing at his job, but for like basic boo boos, he can do he can do fine. And he's just he's just fine. He's a fine guy. Sure. Who is content with simple things. Okay. Uh, his mother and father kind of arranged this marriage of him to this widow who is supposedly rich. Um, he is setting up his medical practice in this town. Uh, one day, uh, somebody who sort of owns a farm not too far away, like trips and breaks his leg or fractures his leg. Um, and he is called into to help. And this farmer guy happens to have a daughter who's who's nice and nice to talk to. Her name is Emma, and mm. she's very pretty, and he finds her very enchanting. Okay, uh, but of course he is married, sure, uh, but to this you know, older Char- person to this older yeah person. And so Charles is like he takes a special interest in this case. He maybe visits his patient more often than he strictly needs to because he likes Emma. Yeah, and uh, his his wife, whose name is Heloise. Is uh, like kind of catching cottons on to him, like going and and spending all his time like hanging out at this farm to check on his quote patient. Mm. And she gets really mad and tells him he can't do it anymore. And then it becomes clear that she lied about being rich. And oh, uh, Charles's parents are mad, and Charles is a little mad, and she Heloise like dies. <laughs> Because everyone's so mad at her. Because everyone's so mad at her, Uh-oh. basically. Uh oh. <laughs> and so Charles waits what everybody agrees is a basically tasteful amount of time before. That's a huge thing. That's a big thing. You and gotta his, wait. And, and it's it's a thing where like Emma doesn't she doesn't dislike him, uh, but it's you know it's it's 19th century times in France, and so and the farmer Emma's dad just kind of notices Charles being around a lot and would like to have this daughter kind of offloaded and so he's like yeah I get my permission just we'll wait till the spring when it's been like a year since your wife died and then you can, and then you can have her my god <laughs> uh, so they get married and things are going basically fine uh you know Charles's practices is going well he he succeeds mostly by virtue of not like challenging himself a whole lot, but you know, everybody knows people like this. I think in some ways I'm a person like this. I've basically like risen to the the level of my, <laughs> of my like basic competence and I just kind of get by and I'm doing fine. Uh, and, but Emma is, she's having, so two things to know about Emma is she was educated like she was educated at all. I mean, she was still educated in a convent. She, she was like educated in a place where she was like allowed to read books and do all this dodgy stuff that 
I don't know that that maybe women shouldn't be allowed to do, you know, maybe if it's going to put all these ideas in their heads, maybe we shouldn't be letting women read books and like no stuff. You I know? did. I did encounter the term like female Quixote as I was reading about this book. I think that is it's a somebody. Name, oh, it's a I name think that's of somebody another novel. Oh, really? OK. From se- from the se- from 1750. OK. I was going to say anybody who calls Emma. The a female Quixote is like one of these two books that person has not read. Sure, fair I'm not enough. sure which one. I, I think people who have read both are maybe like trying to draw an interesting point of compare. Just like the the whole part of that book that is like these books poisoned this man's brain. He uh-huh. can't handle reality anymore. That's, that's fair. I guess Emma's uh, her um, reaction to that is less fantastical. I also don't know that it's entirely the books, but there are people in this book who blame it on books. Yeah, yeah. But it's also like Charles's mom, who seems like kind of a piece of work. So it's like, I'm not sure how seriously I'm supposed to take that accusation, you know? I think you're supposed to, and even in Quixote, I think you're supposed to, like, not be on board with that. In Quixote, I'm supposed to hate and want to burn all these bad romance, like not romance books, but these like bad adventure books, because there are whole sequences where they take Quixote's library out to the yard and burn it in a fire because of how bad all the books are. (laughs) Yes, sure. I Mm -hmm. did. uh, There were some parts of like what is Flaubert satirizing that mentions like he's he is he is taking to task the people who think that books are to blame. There's other stuff going on. No, there are parts of, of Don Quixote that are a burn that are burn books. <laughs> like I know I just talked about burning books in the narrative, but now I'm talking about like a mean girls kind of burn book where sometimes he goes out of his way to mention just an author who he hates. That's well, he did do that multiple <laughs> times. You're right. <laughs> anyway. So, so she, we're talking about who she is and what her deal yes, is. So, uh, uh, here's here's just a little bit about early in Emma and Charles's marriage where he dotes over her a lot because he thinks that he's very lucky. Like up until they are married, basically, the novel is focused on Charles. OK, and so you've got the, you get the three Madame Bovary's I'm talking about are Charles's mom, Charles's first wife. And now we get to Emma, who is the titular Madame Bovary. It's Madame Bovary's all the way down. He could not refrain from constantly touching her comb, her rings, her scarf. Sometimes he gave her great full-lipped kisses on her cheeks or a string of little kisses up her bare arm from the tips of her fingers to her shoulder, and she would push him away with a weary half-smile as one does a clinging child. Before her marriage, she had believed that what she was experiencing was love, but since the happiness that should have resulted from that love had not come, she thought she must have been mistaken, and Emma tried to find out what Uh, Emma tried to find out just what was meant in life by the words bliss, passion, and intoxication, which had seemed so beautiful to her in books. Mm. So she's, she is like, I don't feel like I thought I would feel. Yeah. Just kind of from the outset. Um, And is, yes, uh, the, the uh, push him away with a weary half smile as one does a clinging child is about as good as their relationship gets for the Great. duration of the rest of the book. So awesome. just keep that in mind. Okay. Um, did you end up looking up anything about Lydia Davis, who is the translator of this edition? I just wanted to mention her real fast I didn't, as I go I didn't into reading like, a bunch look up of... her biography. I did read uh, the New York Times review of her translation. Um mm-hmm. That was very complimentary. Um, basically, like, listen, uh, this book was written by a guy who's like, 
yo, I spent 12 months coming up with the right word for something. Um, to do a good translation of it means you must like really get it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another... Oh, there was a there was a tra- uh, review in the Globe and Mail that I found, where in a di- in a previous edition of the book, there's like a quote from Sartre talking about Flaubert and like his voice depicting this woman and like what ty- it's like a man's idea of a woman and and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the reviewer said. Uh, the key to why Davis's translation is fresh, dynamic, and riveting. She is a woman pretending to be a man who is pretending to be a woman, thereby erasing all but the external markers of gender and getting right to the heart of Emma Bovary's complex and fascinating humanity. We end up not being able to condemn her because we cannot divorce ourselves from the empathy Flaubert has forged, first between Emma and herself, and then uh, Emma and himself, and then between Emma and us. Um, so mostly I read like praise for the translation. I didn't look up much about Lydia. Yeah, like not not knowing anything about the original French or any other translations. Like I I did have a good time with this. I think that she um she is she definitely whether this is Flaubert or her, I don't I don't know. Like it's hard to separate, but like she definitely has a sense of like the comic timing and mm-hmm. <laughs> just like knows how to word thing. It just it's a, it reads well. It's a, you know, sometimes you read a translation and I think the Translators note we always think about and talk about is uh, Emily Wilson's for her yeah. Odyssey translation, but like she, sh- this reads like somebody who knows the difference between something extremely literal and something that like speaks to a reader who is contemporary to the text. So this translation came out, I think, in 2010. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, yeah, she's she's still alive. She's born in 1947, and she's just like done a few uh, notable French books. Uh, including this one, so like that's that's the main thing to know. About yeah, it, I'm seeing uh, Proust and Foucault on the mm-hmm. on the list as like the French authors she's tackled, and she won the the 2013 Man Booker mm-hmm. translation award. Yeah, she knows what she's doing. I think it's pronounced uh, Proust and Foucault, so I don't know why you're. I don't know. I just I don't know if you want to like time code me so that you get those. So that I can edit this show, so those so your bad pronunciations don't don't make it out. I think Foucault is totally correct. No, I think it's Proust and Foucault. I I actually don't know about my man Marcel. I don't. I can't defend my pronunciation of Marcel's name. I'm completely. I'm completely messing with you, and I thought that would be clearer. I think it is clear. You seem actually worried that I'm mostly just. I was. I. Well, I was concerned, and then I was like, "Well, let's live in me being concerned." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To put on it's just put, it's just really embarrassing when you make such a such I a know. bad mistake on. The, I'm kind of surprised I'm still on the call right now. I should have just hung up in shame. Yeah, I really need to. Like, is there a way you go, can? Hang I need to. Me I need up? to go to the board of directors and have you removed from yeah. this podcast. Basically. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. Okay. Okay, so Charles and Emma, they're married. Uh things are not like things are things are fine question mark. Yeah. Uh she wanted a fancy and then, cake and like she got some okay cookies. Yeah. And so uh they they Charles treats um some like member of the slightly higher up aristocracy and he he does it close enough in proximity to this big ball that this this guy has. I think it's like a 
He's a, I don't, I'm, Yo, you mean like a party, not like yeah, a large for, spherical like a object. It's a big ball. He's okay, a big sorry. Ball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so they go to the big party and Emma is like, whoa, everybody's so well dressed. I'm dancing all night. And my husband kind of looks like a schlub. Uh-oh. And this is just like an awesome, cool party that I'm at. To the point where every day after that, she's like, man, yesterday I was at this party. Two days ago, I was at this party. And then every Wednesday for a while, she's she's like, yeah, man, a week ago, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was at the school party. And is just like her entire life seems more shabby and, and common for having briefly been exposed to this like slightly higher, this like slightly upper crust okay. thing. Um, and like, she is, she is just like waiting all year to be invited back to this party. And oh, she's no. not because clearly they were just invited to like, to be polite. Oh God. <laughs> and, but, but this, this instills in her this, this first glimpse of like this, this need to, to have nice things and to, you know, to be in the the thick of it with these with these people who, she wants to be know, where the people who, are. Who have nice, yeah. She's the, she, and uh, so Charles kind of notices that she's a little down, and he's like, "Yeah, let's move to a slightly nicer. Let, let's move to a bigger town, and maybe this change of scenery will be okay good for you." Uh, so now I am going to actually, for real, butcher some French pronunciation yeah real let's quick go. because something that you wanted to talk about was like the the realism element of this book yeah and i think where the where you notice it the most is sort of in the i'm not gonna say that they are sort of fantasy book-esque in their descriptions of like you, you know you'll read oh, a fantasy book sure. that is like yeah and here's a feast and here's like every ingredient that was in every cake that everybody ate or like here's every like uh, you know if you if you've ever read Wheel of Time Robert Jordan stuff you're like here's every spire on every building in this city yep and how it's slightly different from all the spires that I've described to you and all the cities that we visited before this but there is a there is an element of like lived inness that he tries to convey especially when you change locations that I think that this is gets this to, was gets to what you're talking mentioned about. in many reviews and like. People being like, this is one of the things that like is a hallmark of this book. So yeah, hit me off the top of your head with your AP French, like uh, L apostrophe A B B A Y E. Would you have any pronunciation? A B. I think it's supposed to refer to an abbey. Labay. Yeah, sure. Yonville Labay, so named for an old abbey of. Capuchin friars of, and I'm sure I did that word bad too, of which even the ruins no longer exist is a market town, eight leagues from Rouen between the Abbeville and the Beauvais roads in the bottom of a valley watered by the real, real, <laughs> a small river that flows in the Andel after working three mills near its mouth and in which there are a few trout that boys like to fish with lines on Sundays. You leave the highway at the La Boiserie and continue level as far as the top of Lelou Hill, from which you first discern the valley. The stream that runs through it creates two regions distinct in physio- 
physiognomy. <laughs> Everything on the left is a pasture. Everything on the right is tillage. And the grassland extends under a fold of low hills to join at the far end of pastures of the Bray country. While to the east, the plain rising gently broadens out and extends its blonde wheat field as far as the eye can see. The water, run, the water that runs along the edge of the grass div divides with its line of white, the color of the meadows from the color of the furrow. So the countryside resembles a great mantle unfolded, its green velvet collar edged with silver braid. On the horizon before you, when you arrive, you have the oaks of the Arguil Forest and the escarpments of the St. Jean Hill, streaked from top to bottom by longer regular trails of red. These are the marks left by the rains and their brick red tones standing out so clearly in slender threads against the gray of the mountain come from the abundance of frugimous springs that flow beyond in the surrounding countryside. And it goes and goes and it keeps going like that for a while. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. He really wants you to know where you are. He really wants you to know where you are. And I think if you are reading this as a French person and you're getting all this stuff, I think I think it is each of these locations that he describes is probably putting you in a specific I, I what I, what I gather from context is that he's trying to put you in a specific frame of mind about not just the place where you are and it's like proximity to, to like big cities, but also the kinds of people that you would find there. Is he is, and I, I forgive me. I don't think I caught any of it. If it was there is he, he's not like giving you the history of these places as he's describing them. Right. He's mostly he's kind of just describing them as they are. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, well, okay. So I turn the page and here's like a little bit until 1835, there was no passable road for reaching Yonville, but about that time they established a major lo local route that connects the Abbeville road to that of Amiens and sometimes used by carters going from Rouen into Flanders. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Yonville Bay has stood still despite its new outlets. Instead of improving the cultivated lands, the people here persist in maintaining the pastures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, in this case, he only gives you a little bit of history so he can convey to you that it did not change a lot of stuff to have a big, <laughs> have a big road going into this town. Nice, nice. Yeah, it's, so it's, it is a, like a more established town than they were in before, but it's still, you know, kind of provincial kind of... Okay. Ex exurban, if you if you want. Sure. <laughs> like you can take a carriage into Paris if you want, but but it's going to take a while. It's yeah, it's going to take a bit. Okay. Okay. It's a it's a solid day trip to go to Paris. Sure. Well, As we'll talk about more. The, we're talking. Then you're about not the, in the action, are you? Yeah. Um. But yeah, we're we're talking about the the um sort of relationships in in the book. It'll become relevant how long it takes to get to Paris. Oh sure. Okay. So does this um, like make her feel better and she's totally satisfied? I'm sure it does. It 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 does introduce her to to new people. Um, there are a big cast of characters in this in this town. Like most of them suck. The suckiest two of them, who we'll talk about a couple times. Actually, the the um, uh, H O M A I S Home H O M A I S A I S. Yeah, Home. Let's say Home. He is. A guy who sucks so bad, but I don't think we'll get a chance to talk about him as much as we, as much as just bury him. He would merit. He would merit. He's the town pharmacist, and he's the main. Like you talked about, uh, people in the in the slightly lower class and being the people in the slightly upper upper class. Like he's the biggest climber guy. Okay, who we meet in the en entire book, and he's one of a couple of people who is kind of subtly the architect of all the bad stuff that happens to Love Emma it. and to the Bovary family. Just love it. 
insofar as he's like super judgy and pushes Charles beyond his like comfort level in the realm of medicine. Cause he's a pharmacist, but he's like definitely not licensed or anything. Oh yes. Super duper, like some YouTube influencer who's telling you to drink weird tea and that eating enough carrots can cure cancer or whatever. He's just like, he's not no, no, no thanks. He's not a serious person. He's not a serious person. Okay. And the other guy, the other bad, bad dude is uh, uh, LaRue. Sure. Who is kind of a, uh, he runs, imagine a guy who runs a pawn shop, but then he also is a huge con artist. I'm having trouble your, coming up with such a character in my brain. Come, but like, unlike a, unlike your typical pawn star type guy who mostly kind of just like, doesn't provide services unless asked. Like this is a sort of a traveling pawnbroker who tr- comes by your house to offer you nice things so that he can ensnare you in debt. Oh, so like an MLM guy? Yes, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I think I heard. I think I read MLM a stands for Monsieur, Monsieur Larue's machinations. Yeah, because that's that's what. <laughs> Yeah, that's what does. Emma gets wrapped up. In. I read uh, I, one article. I read mentioned like at least, and it didn't use his name, so I didn't clock it. Like characters who kind of push a materialism or push some sort of like living beyond your means, or or so, so maybe is that what this is? Yeah, and like Emma's open to it, and it's definitely there are definitely, I guess. Def- you you might call them deficiencies in her character. I know, well, like one thing I I asked you to to do some research about, and we've talked about it a little bit. Is like, yeah. who is this book goofing on? Like, who are we supposed to come away with the worst impression of? I think there is a version of us a few years ago who that that would have come away with this from this book being like, oh, Emma sucks. Yeah, <laughs> because she does low key suck in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, I think we're supposed to come away from it being more and and part of the reason why the book keeps going after she dies. I think especially talking about uh, what like Omei is doing is we're supposed to be more disapproving of all the people around her who like enabled her to, you know, to fall like she does. I I think we're supposed to dislike them more. That's that's ultimately what I came around to. The word tragic figure comes up a lot when you're talking about her. And so like. That doesn't necessarily th- that allows for a read of her where you are not excusing bad things she does or people she harms or whatever, but it does elevate the conversation to like, well, what forces what other people were part of her downfall or part of why she had the value system she had or yeah, because like at her at her core, she just kind of is the she's she's like all i want is what i have coming to me all i want is my fair share like hey, i read these books that yeah. told me what love was going to be like i am just chasing that yep and by the end she comes around to this is another quote i grabbed um where she is so at this at this point and we'll talk a little bit more you know in detail about about emma's arc but and at this point she you know she her, her, she does not like her husband, like nope. actively hates Charles at this oh, point. Oh boy. Has had two like long, like long standing affairs with other guys who have eventually like ended. And even though 
she like something that she does frequently when she starts like not being as enamored with somebody who she's having a relationship with is it like she acknowledges that she doesn't she isn't feeling as much but that just makes her lean into it more because she's more desperate to like capture that feeling that she thinks she's supposed to be feeling which is part which is like the core tragic like element of her, her character, that's the I core think. part that that um, in a nutshell sounds like one of the things about her that is the like Oh, you don't like her? Have you looked in a mirror? Like it's like <laughs> it's it's these types of characters where it's like they go after things, they make, you know, objectively bad or harmful choices, and then if you like stop for a second and think, you're like, "Oh, crap. <laughs> Am I the baddie?" Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, Mm-hmm. Okay, continue. Uh, but this is this is a section I I highlighted and just wrote like thesis statement in mm-hmm. my notes, mm-hmm. like a, a section toward the end because Love those. I think a lot of books that are that are a lot of books that have some kind of social commentary at their core will like this is their version of saying the name of the thing in the thing. Sure, you know I mean they I mean? say it's like, how many times do they say Madame Bovary? I bet a, a maybe lot. They say, they say Madame Bovary a lot of times, so okay. it's it, you know kind of loses its you know much like a much like an affair that goes on for too long. It oh kind of loses God. its impact. Sure. <laughs> but there's a point where you know you've been you've been implying the social commentary, and then you turn to the camera and you're like, "Hey, here's what I'm trying to say." I love those moments. Yes, uh, she. It didn't matter. She was not happy and never had been. Why was life so? Inadequate. Why did the things she depended on turn immediately to dust? Yet if somewhere there existed a strong, handsome being with a valorous nature at once exalted and refined with the heart of a poet in the shape of an angel, a lyre with strings of brass sounding elegaic epithalamiums. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> epithalamiums. Yeah. So the heavens, then why mightn't she by chance find him? Oh, what an impossibility. Nothing anyway was worth looking for. Everything was a lie. Every smile hid a yawn of boredom. Every joy a malediction. Every pleasure its own disgust. And the sweetest kisses left on your lips no more than a vain longing for a more sublime pleasure. Always wanting more. Yeah. But only because she's been led to believe that more is out there. Is out there. Yeah. And so she has the, you know, she has, she has these couple of affairs that burn very hotly for a while. And it's, it's, they, they both end up more or less the same way, but it, the two guys that she falls for are different yeah, in how are some they important different? ways. We could talk about, uh, the first guy she has. Okay. So she, she gets to Yonville. Uh, there's this guy, Leon, who is a sort of a, he's a law student who she falls for a little bit. They both are obvious. They are both obviously to the reader into each other, but they never really declare their feelings to each other. And so he goes to Paris to to further his like you know his law career, and she is left in Yonville by okay. herself. And so around the same time this happens, this guy we're going to call him Rudy because I don't want to butcher another sure. French word, French name. Okay, uh, Rudy. Rudy comes into town. And he is, he's a classic rake. Uh-oh. He looks at her and he's like, she's pretty. And I bet that with this cool Jordan Peterson book that I have, that I could basically con her into having a relationship with me. Oh my God. And so he does that. And they are in this relationship for four years and there are ups and downs. Uh, the the most notable like down for their relationship is a point where she is kind of losing, you know, she she's she's losing that spark, 
And she briefly is looking at Charles like, you know, he's reliable. He's not so bad. His teeth aren't even that bad. And it's at this exact point where partially egged on by Omey, uh, Charles decides to do this weird, innovative surgery on a, uh, a young uh, stable boy in town who is afflicted with a club foot. That's the, the thing sure. that the book says that he has. And, you know, it's, again, 19th century times. How do you think a new novel, untested surgery, is going to go? Pretty poorly. <laughs> Charles does this thing because he's convinced it's going to be easy and it's going to go great. And this poor kid, like, has to have his leg amputated because it goes all gangrenous because everything goes wrong. And it, to Emma, like, reinforces the fact that this guy is a schlub and he's unexceptional and he's never going to be able to rise to the level of what she feels like she wants and can get in a in a partner. We haven't even talked this whole time about sh- how shortly after they moved to Yonville, they have a daughter. Oh. Uh, who, <laughs> whose name is Bertha and is just extremely tragic. Um, Emma's feelings on I imagine they're not great just real quick there's a point where Bertha as like a let's call her like a toddler comes to Emma and tries to get Emma to pay attention to her and Emma like pushes her and it like scrapes her face and she has to get a bandage on her face and then she looks at her injured child sleeping with a you know like a, a plaster stuck to her cheek and Emma's thought is how strange the child is so ugly <laughs> my god so it's pretty rough no like you feel bad for emma in some ways but also like she is she is tough to it's tough to be in her corner um like fully okay let me let me smash the glass on uh three star goodreads reviews real quick okay three star yep this one's coming in from rachel hit me three star goodreads reviews Rachel says, poor Charles, poor Bertha, and poor Emma. Well, the Emma who has little choices in life, who marries a man because it's the only option, who glimpses a life she can't have. Not poor Emma who destroys the lives of everyone around her by acting on capricious whims, who cheats, lies, wrecks, and ruins. Emma's situation was unfortunate, but her reaction deplorable. There is utterly gorgeous prose here, but at the heart of it, I'm relieved to have finished with Madame Bovary, as it would seem was everyone in this novel. Good yeah, review, because, Rachel. Because you, yeah, you feel you feel for Emma, but then also uh, from that moment on, her life was no more than a confection of lies in which she wrapped her love as though in veils to hide it. Lying became a need, a mania, a pleasure to the point that if she said she had gone down the right side of the street yesterday, one could be sure she had gone down the left. <laughs> so she is not she is very uh She's not concerned with hiding the extramarital affairs that she's having. No. Uh, she barely thinks or talks about her child at all. Clearly, at one point, is ready to leave town with Rudy. And she says, oh, I'll bring my daughter. Clearly, he's not planning to bring her daughter. <laughs> uh, so Rudy is like, he, he's, a, he's a pickup artist guy. He comes into town. He ends up having this relationship with her for as long as it's fun. And then when she starts getting serious about let's run away to Paris and be together, he is like, this is getting too real for me. And I think we need to we need to call it. Oh, my Rudy. So he writes her this long letter where he's just trying to think of the most tactful way to be like, yeah, I still totally love you, but I got to go. And like, please don't 
this please don't contact me ever again. Oh my God. And so he writes this feel, he writes this letter and here I, I laughed and laughed at this because it was just, it just hit me so funny. Poor little woman. He thought with emotion, with emotion, she'll think I have no more feeling than a stone. There should have been a few tears on it, but I can't cry. It's not my fault. Then having poured some water into a glass, Rudolph dipped his finger in it and let fall from above a fat drop, which made a pale blot on the ink. Finally looking to seal the letter. He came upon the Amor Nelcor signet ring. This is scarcely appropriate under the circumstances. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. After which he smoked three pipes and went to bed. <laughs> Rudy. <laughs> I'm glad this book is hitting your funny bone. That is an absurd. Oh, it's, it's miserable. But then you get to this point where this horrible, sucky dude is breaking up with her. And he's like, well, them's the breaks. And then he smokes three pipes and then he goes to bed. My God, <laughs> I don't know about uh, pipe smoking and like how many pipes is normal. I have no idea. Like, that sounds like a lot. Huffing three pipes and then going to bed sounds like not good for you. I mean, <laughs> is it is it like are they like jazz pipes? I don't know that they're jazz pipes. He just smokes three pipes and goes to bed. Because if it's regular tobacco and not wacky tobacco, like, I think it's regular tobacco. How could you go right to bed? Well, I'm just thinking about every time I try to smoke a cigar, I get like a third of the way through it, and then my tummy starts to hurt, and I have to stop. <laughs> And so I can't imagine what it must be like to smoke three pipes and then go to bed. Well, good thing it that you are not like Rudy. I'm not like Rudy. And so Rudy dips. Well, and Emma is and also so, smokes pipes. Yes. And well, I don't know that he like I don't know that Rudy is like my Uncle Terry used to be. And he like has like that, you know, like circular indents in the breast pockets of all his T-shirts because he's got his can of skull in there. But, <laughs> uh, but Rudy leaves and Emma is thrown into such a state by this that she is like sick and on her deathbed for like a year oh wow this is the other time where uh where she briefly considers like being okay with charles and the book i don't have the exact quote but it's talking about like this being uh sort of the way that uh, a former adulteress has to like punish and also redeem herself is just being by like especially uh, faithful to the husband that she cheated mm. on. And so she's with Charles. She goes to the city with him to go see a, like a play. And he is being like, I don't get it. You know, he he's being sort of his doofy, uh, artless sort of self. And who else, who is there? But Leon, the lawyer. Oh. boy. I bet he gets it. Liked. Yeah. And so they have a lot of conversations about it. And then she contrives like a million reasons to go to Paris to like stay in a hotel room with Leon and just like hang out and sure. uh, and do stuff. The the lasting excuse is that she is going into Paris on the carriage once a week to have piano lessons. No. <laughs> to the point where she is forging uh, receipts from her supposed piano oh my teacher. God. Come on. Yeah, so she's just lying a lot. At the same time she's doing this, this, this guy LaRoe is coming around and like offering her a bunch of goods. And like when I say offering, I mean like frequently pushing stuff into her hands and being like, this barely costs anything. Don't worry about it. Sure. Um, and so she, it, through her love of nice things and her inability to manage money, gets them like 8,000 francs into debt. Uh, 
her relationship with Leon starts to wear thin and he eventually like, cause, cause he is, while well, he is besotted with her is like, he's kind of like leaving work and he's, you know, doing stuff that his boss and his coworkers are kind of lightly frowning upon. And then it comes time for him to get like, you know, he's going to get, he's going to get serious. He's going to make partner. I don't, that's not what the book says, but I'm just going to make like, partner. Yeah. <laughs> I watched enough lawyer shows to know that making partner is a big deal. Yeah. So I'm going to see he's going to make partner at this law sure. firm. He's going to be um, a made man. Yeah. Well, that's a different thing. Well. But <laughs> and and he has been feeling a little more ambivalent about about Emma. And so they kind of break it like he breaks it off with her and she is like not feeling good. And then her bills come due and she's not feeling good. And she goes to everybody in town and ask for money and they won't give it to her. And she, he, she goes to Leon and he won't give it to her. And she's like, well, if you can't get a loan, can you just, you know, you work at a fancy law firm. Can you not just steal the money? And Leon is like, listen, we're broken up. Oh no. <laughs> uh, she goes, Rudy. And he's like, listen, I don't, I seriously don't have it. Like I, I would give it to you if I did, but I don't have it. Uh, so Emma goes and, and she, breaks into with with the help of of the pharmacist assistant who has a crush on her breaks into the like the pharmacist's equipment and grabs arsenic and like eats it and dies she just poisons herself to escape from her thing okay uh so she does that she dies it's very tragic and then charles is very sad about this and then charles who's just the most oblivious guy in all of literature after this discovers that she was cheating on him for years oh and years with two different guys <laughs> quick quick question about the cheating um it doesn't need to be a long conversation but like does it it doesn't depict sex does it no it don't it okay. only like a couple of times even obliquely mentions not being in clothes okay or yeah th- there are a couple of sentences that pretty strongly imply that's what's going on and also like it is it does kind of beggar belief to think that for years and years she is sneaking out to be in like houses and hotel rooms with these two guys and they're just like sitting on each other uh, each other's laps and like giggling at each other no of course it feels like I think it went to trial because everybody knows that they're talking about sex. Yeah, yeah, but you can't, you can't have like a even a fade to black sex scene in a book like this. I don't think, but it is extremely strongly implied that this is what's going on. Well, she's and she's stepping out on her husband, which is you know, yeah, which is bad enough. Bring the band hammer down. Like, I mean, if you you just like if you're holding hands with somebody who's not your husband and you're married, like, that's that's the most scandalous thing. Like, oh my god. Um, Yes. Okay. So okay, so Charles is. Charles finally is, awakening. Charles is sad. Charles is also, uh, it, and he, he still loves her and is still like yeah. kind of obsessed with her and only more obsessed with her after she's died. He is still deeply in debt because of the bad, all the surgery. debts that she, she racked up. Oh, well, not even the bad surgery like that. Even that is more played for laughs than anything. It's only, oh, it's mostly there to demonstrate that Charles is a schlub who Emma can never really love. Sure. Um, but he has all of her debts and then including some where like the fake piano teacher who knows that she never gave anybody piano lessons is like charging him for piano lessons that Emma said that she had taken. Oh my God. <laughs> These so people. It, is, when I'm talking about it being funny, like this is, it is, it 
has to be comic, the tragedy, like how highly the tragedy is, is heaped on all of these characters. Sure. Sure. Uh, so Charles kind of dies of stress. Okay. And Bertha goes to live with Charles's mom and then she dies. And then Emma's dad is like, he is in poor health. And so Bertha just like goes to live with an aunt and then has to go like work out in a factory and like her life sucks too. And that's the, uh, like, like that's the last you hear about Bertha. Uh, it's again, it made me laugh only because of how ice cold it is. Like yeah, how ice sure. cold and bleak. Uh, when everything was sold, there remained 12 francs, 75 centimes, which served to pay for Mademoiselle Bovary's journey to her grandmother. The good woman died within the same year. Uh, Rualt being, this is uh, Emma's dad, being paralyzed. It was an aunt who took charge of her. She is poor and sends her to earn her living in a cotton mill. End of, end of sentence. <laughs> and then every doctor who came to Yonville after Bovary died also has failed. Mostly because the pharmacist who also sucks uh, has been sort of thwarting them on purpose. Oh, nice. And he's a terrible character. And so he, uh, quote, has an infernally good clientele. The authorities treat him kindly and public opinion protects him. He's just been awarded the cross of the Legion of Honor. End of book. What? (laughs) So the most horrible people prosper. Everybody else dies and like ends up working in a cotton mill. Madame Bovary, the end. Dang. Yeah. So it's like. I liked it because it's often funny in its very dark way. Yeah. But boy, it is not a it is not an uplifting tale. No. And it kind of just seems like every is there any like it sounds like Bertha maybe is like one of the few characters in the book who is like unimpeded. Peachable, like it's like just a decent person. That, that might be true, but we really know very little about Bertha's interiority. Like, so it may sure. just be that we don't know her well enough to know the specific ways we, in which she's a bad person who deserves every bad thing that ever happened to her. Is it a book where we know a lot about anybody's interiority, or is it mostly things we infer very strongly from? No, how we get we get a, we get. I mean, we get a ton about how. Emma is feeling we get less about Charles, but only because it's very clear that he does not have a rich interior life. Okay. Neat. <laughs> oh, may we learn a lot about like, uh, including, you know, when somebody goes abroad and they come back with like a British accent or whatever, I he's that. exactly that kind of guy, like using all this trendy slang that he read about on Twitter yeah. to, to see him hip and with it. Great. Wonderful. Um, he's base. I get it. Yeah. Base. Oh, may. <laughs> uh yeah so we, so we get as much as we need about most people's motivations there are other characters who we learn a little bit about too but okay um, but yeah Bertha, we just don't we don't know a whole lot about except she's like a, a moppet who seems virtuous despite basically not having yeah. parents and then later being impoverished but okay but yeah, things are things end up pretty bad for almost everybody except for the worst people. Sure. Like Omei and I we hear less about what happens to LaRue, but he's, you know, he's he's doing fine. He's not getting tossed into jail for like for usury or whatever. Like he he is 
he is doing great. You get the feeling that Emma and the Bovaries are not the only people who he has sort of financially entrapped in this way. Sure, sure. Yeah. Are there other characters that Emma reminded you of as we kind of close down shop here? Like, you know, Betty Draper comes to mind. <laughs> Does she? I, I mean, I think the like the every iteration of the that housewife character, like kind of a frustrated housewife character, at least gets like a tether back to Bovary, even if the specifics are very different. Mm-hmm. But are there other anything else that kind of popped to you? Because this is such a formative text, that's why I ask. Is there anything other? Like- no, I mean, I, I haven't. I also haven't thought about it super sure. deeply. I honestly don't know that Betty Draper is a, a, an amazing touch point because I think something that Mad Men makes very clear. Is, I, I don't. The difference between this and Mad Men is just like we're clearly supposed to think that Don Draper is this like great amazing genius yeah, and that true. Betty's kind of a simple child so it makes it a little bit harder to make a comparison um, yeah I don't know I don't have anything interesting to say on this front I don't think yeah it like the the summaries reminded me of Hedda Gabler even though like she's got different pressures on her but it still is like fighting with romanticism and romantic ideals and then like everything ends in tragedy for people and then also when you kept telling me that it's like and everyone keeps being terrible like the Mm -hmm. implication even though that play does not go very far past her death uh it's strongly implied that it's gonna be bad for everyone moving forward Mm -hmm. um and then this story gets contrasted with anna karenina which i know neither of us have read yeah but anna it's it's the same like tolstoy's still doing like here is the plight of the people kind of realism stuff, but she is more of an overt hero than Emma sounds like she is, which seems to be a lot of people's like stumbling block with this mm-hmm. one. Um, so, yeah. Well, thanks for reading this book, Andrew. Thanks for letting me tell you about it. It is a wild ride. I'll tell you what. <laughs> Mr. Toad's wild ride to France. Um <laughs> If you have thoughts on Madame Bovary, if you've read it, um, you want to tell us about it, you can send us an email, overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at overduepod. Thanks to Emma, Holly, Liesel, Olive, Lizzie, Maria, many more for reaching out in the past week. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there, we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. If you want to buy them, read along with us. Uh, Patreon.com slash OverduePod is our Patreon project. Get access to our Discord server, uh, bonus streams, uh, early access to bonus episodes, including our current long read project. Right now, we're still working through Neil Gaiman's The Sandman, but pretty soon we're going to be moving into Emily Wilson's uh, Iliad translation that comes out this fall. Very excited about that. Yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much it, I think. What are you reading? What are you reading next week? Where are the children? By Mary Higgins Clark. Oh, the Queen of Suspense. Yes, that one. <laughs> I can't can't wait to find the children. We gotta Just find where are them. They? Where where are where are those kids go? I think there's a sequel to that. They're book. working at the cotton mill. Like where where the kids go? I think there's a sequel to that book called Where Are the Children Now? Huh. That yeah. 
<laughs> which I don't know. I just well, I, that... so I found them, but I lost them again. Where are they now? <laughs> it's a cool sequel. It's like look who's talking, and then look who's talking look now. Who's talking it's a great too. sequel convention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for listening to us for another week. Uh, probably next week. I don't think the book's going to be in French, so we're probably going to pronounce stuff a little bit better. I'll try my best you to know? mispronounce some things on purpose. That's, yeah, please do, because that would make me feel better. All right, everybody. Until we talk to you, then please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.